0: Welcome to Politics in Question, where we talk about how our political institutions are failing us and how to fix them. I'm Julia Azari. I'm a professor of political science at Marquette University.
1: And I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America.
0: Today we're joined by Professor Sarah Wallace-Goodman, who is an associate professor of political science at the University of California, Irvine. She's written extensively about immigration and citizenship in comparative perspectives. She has... A forthcoming book called Pandemic Politics, a co-authored book she has written before about immigration, and she's got a recent new book that's kind of the inspiration for this interview that poses some really fascinating and timely questions. So this um, book, Citizenship in Hard Times, is really a a fascinating read, and um, we're going to talk about some of its themes and broaden it out, talk about what's going on in American politics. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you for having me. So the first thing... I want you to do, um, I want to talk about the book and also we're going to, you know, broaden it out and talk about other things beyond the book, but I'd like to ask you to kind of define your terms in the title of the book. It's called Citizenship in Hard Times. What do you mean by citizenship and what do you mean by hard times?
2: So let me start off with citizenship. So citizenship is like it can be a really ambiguous term it's used by a lot of people sometimes you use it in the context of people that become citizens rights so of citizenship or naturalization rules that's kind of my first area of research and kind of how i came to the topic um but in this context i'm looking at it as kind of the set of norms or obligations that individuals who are citizens of a country already define for themselves. So it's not looking at the process of becoming a citizen. It's very much how people who are citizens interpret their obligation or their duty. Now, most of the time, these are norms, behaviors that individuals rarely think about, right? We don't sort of go about our day to day thinking about civic duty, with the exception of an election and the Idea of going to vote, right? With the exception of that, citizenship is not a feature of our everyday lives. So, the first thing I kind of wanted to know is well, what do people think about when we ask them about civic duty, right? What do people think about day to day? How do they think about citizenship? And as I was kind of like setting up a research design to ask this question, I don't want to say things fell apart because things have kind of been, you know, you know both of you know, kind of degrading. But there was sort of this precipitous moment kind of as I was uh, setting up the research design where I was like, well, these aren't ordinary times. Like it isn't just like thinking about whether good citizens join associations or not. Like we're in a different time where citizens may have to kind of be a bulwark against democratic erosion. And so I you know, really kind of took seriously the obligation to think through citizens in response to kind of democratic threat. So, you know, every generation would say for themselves there are hard times, but I think most people agree that we are kind of in a real moment of crisis for democracy. And we know a lot about what elites do. We know a lot about what happens to the institutions. We have a lot of institutional theories for that. But I kind of wanted to know what citizens are doing. How do they see these big problems? Do they identify an agency for themselves in this big problem? Do they see it as kind of too distant for them to even think about or do something about, or do they just throw their hands up? So all of these questions kind of started to come to a head where I asked myself, like, Sarah, combine these things, think about civic obligation and hard times. And so that's what I did. Those are the parts of the title.
1: Yeah. So citizenship, I feel like we have so many folks in the sort of like Good government, political reform world, who say, well, the problem is that, like, nobody takes citizenship seriously. We don't learn civics in high school. Nobody knows what it means to be a citizen. And one of the things that I took from your book, Sarah, which I I thought was super important, is that there's actually a lot of different ways in which we might conceive of what it means to be a good citizen. And that there's this challenge that the the problem is not that people don't want to be citizens, but it's that there are these really deeply maybe not conflicting but distinct ways of being a good citizen. and so just as with democracy, we don't necessarily agree on what it means to for something to be democratic, but we don't even agree on what it means to be civic so can can you kind of help us? through this confusion and talk about what are these different visions of citizenship that you uncovered and how they split left and right and across different countries as well. One of the cool things about this book is you look not only at the US, but also at the UK and and Germany.
2: That's right. The more countries you add and the more civic dimensions you add makes it harder and harder to make it accessible. So a real strategic win on my part.
1: All right. Well, we're we're gonna make it accessible. So so let's, let's let's break it down. You you simplify things, there's some factor analysis. It's you know, it's all cool. It's only three countries.
2: Right. So you really kind of hit the nail on the head. There are a lot of different ways to think about being a good citizen. And there was a, an editorial in was it the Washington Post the other day that was like, we don't need more partisanship, we need more patriotism. And like that headline really grabbed me because it was like, well, not everybody thinks that being patriotic is being a good citizen, right? We have different definitions of what it means to be patriotic. To me, right, patriotism is kind of, well, I hold a very narrow definition, but like to me, patriotism is not defending the flag no matter what. It means defending the values that the flag stands for, right? Tolerance, equality, what I interpret as liberalism, right? And that definition would be different to somebody else, Right. be patriotic to defend the flag. And so, you know, one of the points is that we don't all hold the same definition of good citizenship. We don't all receive the same kind of civic education. Yeah. I love when I read op-eds that are like, well, we just need more or better civic education as if motivated reasoning did not play a role in why we have bad civic education to begin with, right? That and resources.
1: Wait, can you you just hang on that point for a second? Because I I think that's actually a really important point that is going to blow some people's minds here.
2: Right, I mean, so one of the things I always wanna do, and I always abandon this project, is like to compare civic education practices within the 50 states. And I always wanna do it because you would see such enormous variation in how different state curricula define civic education. But also there's so much variation that it's like overwhelming for a researcher, for a singular researcher like myself, right? Because in one state, it could just be a history curriculum, right? Heavily redacted, whitewashed history curriculum. In another state, it could be like specific civic behaviors, right? How to write an op ed, media literacy. It could be under the banner of civic education. But like the US, we don't have a standardized curriculum. England has a standardized civic curriculum, right? So there's variation cross nationally, but like this deep variation that we observe within the 50 states, you know, there is no civic curriculum, right? Learning symbols in one state may be. One version and learning the history of Santa Ana, like we do in Southern California, is a different version, right? So there is no standard civic education. There's no standard kind of civic training that native-born citizens get, right? And I think the reason this is like really fascinating to me is because I also study how immigrants become citizens. So I take very seriously the material that is presented to aspiring citizens, right? Study these 100 questions, take this 10 question test. This is supposed to be the sum total of how we define a good citizen in this country. And like those expectations are so different for native born, right? You're socialized into citizenship, you're born into citizenship, but we never take an oath of citizenship. We never kind of positively affirm our values. So like there's just so much open space to define for yourself what it means a good citizen. So we would expect that And there's kind of like a lot of work in this space by, you know, people like, you know, my colleague Russ Dalton, who have looked at some of these values over time. And we've always seen some differences between liberals and conservatives, right? So conservatives are kind of more likely to hold nationalistic or what we might call patriotic values. Whereas, you know, uh, liberals may value things like community service or helping others' welfare-oriented values. But I think remarkably is we really see a crystallization of these values around partisanship. Uh, And that's kind of a real problem, like so many things where, you know, partisanship becomes a social identity that what we think of as being a good citizen starts to merge with, like, what's good for our party identity, right? What's good for the fate of our party, which really kind of collapses The purpose of citizenship as something to be above parties and party identity uh, into something that can be a bit more instrumentalized to undermine democracy. So,
0: as a parties person, I listened to another interview that you did and you kind of talked about country over party, and your book raises some points about how partisanship plays out in a kind of polarized two party context versus a multi party context. So, I guess part one of my question is to sort of break down and tell us a little bit more about what you found across these different contexts. But the second one, my kind of second part of this question is that I want to really investigate how this plays out in the United States right now, when you have a kind of fundamental partisan disagreement over core tenets of democracy. I know that's not exactly what you're talking about with citizenship, but it seems to me like citizenship and the sort of reciprocal, you know, liberal tenets of democracy are, I've got to be related. (laughs) So I I have some sort of contemporary, like current events, follow-ups about those, but I want to make sure our listeners um, are on board with us about what you, what you basically find about the relationship between party system and some of these citizenship attitude patterns.
2: Sure. So let me, I guess, start with the U S because as Lee mentioned, right. I look at three countries because what I wanted to do was kind of vary the institutional context in which partisanship might matter. So, you know, the U.S. has the two-party system, the presidential system, majoritarian politics, but then you move to the UK where you can kind of hold the institutional design similar uh, in terms of the winner-take-all aspect, but you have more parties. And then you include Germany where you kind of not only have this multi-party system, but kind of the parliamentary politics that uh, privilege consensus-based governing, right, over kind of a winner-take-all system. So by varying that, I can kind of see, does the institutional context itself play a role? And I, you know, in the book, I show that it does. But I want to start with the US. Um, I think that's probably most interesting for the audience. And I would start by saying that really importantly is there is a critical overlap of shared values. That's really important. So you don't see differences by partisanship on things like valuing other people's opinions, having friends with different uh, values, right? having patience if your side loses which is not surprisingly, because I think we tend to overestimate how many Republicans are anti-democratic, right? I'm not saying there aren't any, but I think we overestimate how much of that is kind of a widely shared value. But like, where you see the differences between partisans, so there is that kind of critical overlap. And, that, and those are kind of core liberal values, right? Tolerance, things like that, right? Where you see differences, right, are on things like Accepting diversity, right? So Democrats are much more likely to say that accepting diversity is an important feature of good citizenship. Republicans are much more likely to say things that feeling American or speaking English or um, supporting government, that these, uh, which we would also kind of correlate as more authoritarian attributes, right, are also kind of features of good citizenship. So we see important differences, though I would say that kind of there is that critical overlap that makes for these differences to be possible and sustainable, right? Because all systems are defined by diverse values. You don't want homogenization. So there is kind of this important overlap and then partisan differences. You know, you do see those differences in other systems as well in line with kind of like that left supports things like protesting more than supporters of the right, right? That's kind of a finding that carries into the UK as well. But, you know, you see this critical overlap and that's kind of reassuring. Uh, The second part of your question, Julia, was about was about Republicans who want who deny democracy.
0: Well, kind of. Yeah. I mean, I guess I was sort of thinking about how we apply this this country over party framework, given this sort of situation that we're in. I mean, I was thinking a lot about the response to Joe Biden's speech a couple of weeks ago and there was a there was a whole lot of media criticism about it being partisan. And I was wondering if, as a sort of citizenship scholar, um, what your reaction to that speech and the discourse around it
2: was? I mean, you know, it's only as partisan as the media labels it to be partisan, right? I don't think that you can call out Maga Republicans as undemocratic unless they do things that are undemocratic, right? And I think that all evidence points to the fact that they are. Uh, there's no way that you can make a statement you know that condemns anti-democratic behavior by a party without making it look partisan, right? But there's a difference between being partisan and being political. And I think that it's okay for a president with a political party to be partisan. Um we may differ on that. But it's a hard question because it kind of gets back to that civic education point I made about motivated reasoning. Right. You know, these are surveys and I think that by asking people outside of that kind of context about the 2020 election, so this was fielded a, a year before uh, hand, Right. That that these are these are kind of like true beliefs, true convictions. Um, you know, I think that this is what people really feel. The problem is like there is a gap between how you feel about something and then like what happens when you're called in the moment. I think to respond. I don't know how many Republicans believe that the 2020 election was stolen. I just don't. I don't know how much of a firmly held conviction that is. What I do know is that majority of Republicans that I asked in a nationally representative sample, told me that they value things like elections, right? They value things like liberal values and they value things like vigilance and voting and being informed and having friends with different views, right? So that they do kind of a lot of the things that we expect citizens to do. The other thing I would say about thinking about undemocratic behavior is that these are still all just like opinions. Unless you were at the Capitol on January 6th, you have not attached those opinions to behavior. And I think something like questioning the 2020 results, it's so distant from someone's everyday life, right? That I think it's easy to have opinions in both directions, which I recognize is a huge equivocation. So, with so much, I'm sorry about. It's it's just it is hard to think about, and I wish I had a satisfying answer. I'm well, going to circle back to that.
1: All right. Well, it's okay because you've come to the podcast where where we don't expect people to have satisfying answers, but rather to get into the complications and complexities and contradictions of politics. So I want to pull out a few threads here and see what they. Add up to so one. I like Julia's question about country over party, which I find to be the most vacuous and banal statement ever. Because for precisely, I think the reasons that that you get it at the book is that like we have a lot of different opinions of what it means to be country over party. But I think that the core problem that you're getting at in the book is that it's not just we have different views about what it means to put country over party, but our political parties are sorted by those differing views. So just as we have different views of what makes a good citizen by party, we probably have different views about what is patriotic or what is is the thing that puts country over party. So it seems to me that the way in which our elections happen and the way in which we engage in politics is that if I'm a Democrat, I'm surrounded by other Democrats, I'm mostly reading opinions and commentary that emphasize values that are quite different than what Republicans are getting. And so we have a clash over what it means to be a good American, what it means to be a good citizen. But I, I think you've also raised a really interesting question, which is, well, okay, so what? As long as we could disagree by party over what it means, but you know, until there's a consequential moment in which citizens are called on to act in a particular way that either upholds or undermines democratic values, then maybe this is all just so much idle survey research. But I guess the challenge is that we, we don't know when that moment comes, and maybe it comes when citizens are faced with a choice in a particular Senate or House election that winds up deciding control of Congress or a presidential election or whether to engage in a protest or not. So how should we think about this? And how important... The, the other thing, and I'll kind of give you a way to, to move us towards uh, what, what to do about it, and there's a line I like in your book, I'll quote, democracy is based on disagreement, but only survives when sustained by cross-cutting avenues that lower the stakes of disagreement. So I also love to hear you unravel th- those ideas with the threads that I've pulled together. A lot of metaphors there. Yeah.
2: Okay. I think I want to start by actually answering Julia's question. <laughs> Because it has now come to me, I think, how I would respond. The thing about the kinds of people that Joe Biden called out in his speech, those are still elected officials or kind of leaders and like the people that showed up on January 6th. I really think Alaska is probably a good case study to show that kind of most Republicans, and Lee, you must love this, right? Like, given the chance to articulate more than one preference like Republicans understand that there's still democratic values worth protecting and someone like Sarah Palin is not going to protect them. There's still a way to kind of articulate, you know, if given the opportunity, right, where the stakes are lower, so to speak, if given the opportunity that I still think kind of a majority of people on both sides, the center holds, right? (laughs) The kind of liberal democratic center still holds. That's not to say it's not precarious. That's not to say that there aren't rules in place and moving in place that will undermine free and fair competition, right? I mean, I'm also friends with Rick Hassan and that guy's, I mean, he's like a, a regular doomsday alarm clock, but like, there are a lot of things to be worried about, but, you know, elites are doing one thing. And I think that citizens are kind of showing us they're doing something right now that we should be kind of reassured and by and large. So that I think suffices um, in terms of thinking about undemocratic supporters and actors. And Lee, your question we have seen more opportunities for people to turn preferences into action than you know, ever when we think back about you know, the Women's March or Black Lives Matter, or you know, even anti-masking protests, right? There is more what we would traditionally label as civic behavior than we kind of ever realized. And so like that's citizenship too, right? Is believing that you have individual agency as a free participant in society. Those are good signals, right? You may not agree with the politics of it, but uh, you know there is a sense that citizens have more opportunities than kind of the one-shot deal of the voter booth to impact politics. And the thing about democracies is it's kind of not just that individuals can participate free of interference, and that you know more than one parties can compete, and that you have a set of liberal values that kind of underscore mutual tolerance. Those are all the features, right? So I've defined democracy for you, but it's that it can. Because of those features, sustain all types of diversity, right? Ideological, you know, identity, background, ascriptive features, right? I mean, all sorts of diversities can flourish. That's the point of mutual toleration, right? That's the point of state neutrality, right? Is that you can have all these diversities by delivering kind of robust liberalism. This is something that in Europe is called muscular liberalism. And that's really, that's critical. I take a lot of solace in seeing evidence that these values are still held because it allows for that kind of quintessential individualism, right? That that is also a feature of kind of American identity. And that's enabled through liberalism and the kind of the toleration and values that go with it. Maybe I should be more worried, but it's 2022 and I'm so tired of worrying. No,
0: I like this. This is, this is what we like in this podcast is, you know, an array of perspectives about the state of American democracy. Um, Lee has written some very compelling stuff too about um, some more optimistic perspectives and generating more questions and answers. So, I want to ask a question. This may be a little bit a field of what you were trying to get at in some of the comments about citizenship that are really rooted in values and mutual toleration. But one of the things I find really interesting about citizenship, and in case it's not obvious um, from my questions, as you know, and as many of our listeners know, I teach American presidency. um, And I often talk about obligation in that context. And I think it's really interesting to think about obligation in terms of what citizens, you know, what citizens have that balances out their their rights as citizens and some of what i was reading and listening to um reminded me a little bit of this weird this sort of weird discourse that emerged i think around the dobbs decision on kind of left twitter about voting and this question of kind of like you know people are just saying vote harder and what have the democrats done for in this case it's sort of people on the the far left questioning the democrats right what if And there's a sort of youth element to this too, right? What has this party done for us? Why are we being asked to vote? This is very much about voting in a partisan context, but of course it's this sort of voting and participation and this question about, well, at what point have citizens done their part and elites haven't? How do we think about those types of obligations? I was wondering if you had any sort of comments on this this element of the voting and obligation discourse.
2: (laughs) I'm like... I got comments on Dobbs, but that's not what you want. Um, yeah. So like that was one of the things that also pushed me to think more uh, inductively about civic obligation It's like, it can't just be voting. It can't because like Dobbs is the example, right? I also saw that, but I already voted for pro-choice people, right? And why You know, Supreme Court is legislating. Okay. So it, like being a good citizen, and even if you think that your obligation as a citizen is to like for the interests of your party, right? It has to be things other than voting. Um, It is not just that we live in a democracy, but we live in like a participatory one. So there has to be lots of things that you can do. And so I think that, you know, for me, it was very valuable to take an uh, inductive approach to see what do people think being a good citizen is? Like, yes, voting, that's true, but like so is obeying the law. So is helping others that need it. So, you know, and there, you know, there is a category where you can anticipate, you know, cross-partisan support, right? That there's something inherently democratic about helping others. There's nothing inherently Republican about obeying the law, right? I mean, these are these correlate, but there's nothing right, deterministic about it. So there are a lot of things that citizens could do. Olds like me think that it's writing your Congressperson calling and leaving a voicemail and like that's true but right there has to be more it's like the mobilization it's the social networks that you build it's the capital that you build up between individuals that then lets you tell them to go participate in a protest or to you know ask someone else to write a letter to congress right so it's like so much more than kind of what we traditionally thought of as participatory behavior and i'm really into the idea that good citizenship is like building up ties to other citizens right in some contexts they're called organizers right but i think that this is like not just a leadership position but it is something that all citizens can do and the more social capital that you build up the more you can then ask people down the line if mobilization opportunities arise or if you need critical mass or something. The thing about democracy is, is not just one iteration, right? Is that we keep going, right? And there's wins and losses and there's forbearance for when that happens. And we need to find more opportunities to iterate, so to speak. All
0: right, Lee, bring us home.
1: So what you're describing, Sarah, is really a, a very th- thick democracy. It's a, it's a rich democracy. It's a democracy that's happening in multiple places, at multiple levels, in which citizens are really engaged. Now, I think part of the challenge of our politics right now is that it feels to me that a lot of a lot of folks feel very powerless in our politics right now. They feel like government is broken. They feel like they're not well represented. I think to get at what Julia was saying. There's a lot of people who feel like, well, even if I vote, nothing changes. And everything is so focused on what happens in Washington at the national level. And so it just feels very disempowering. At the same time, there's so many opportunities to kind of participate at this very superficial level. This is, I, I guess, what Eitan Hirsch would call political hobbyism, But I think part of the challenge is there's not there's just not a lot of demand or not a lot of desire to to actually do the hard work of organizing. And people feel tired. We've we've gone through a pandemic. People are working too hard, and they're not making enough money, and they have to work harder. And everything just feels disempowering. And it's so much easier to kind of just crap on the other side uh, than it is to get out and do the work and you know to do what you suggest which is to kind of build ties especially beyond one's bubble is well now you're selling out you're you know you're you're trying to work with republicans or something uh, so i mean it seems to me that this is consistent with this problem of the the binary hyper partisan two party system but it, it, it's there's there's something else going on in this particular political moment And so I want to have hope. I am hopeful that it's a moment of transition, but I'm kind of curious how, how you see us getting out of what, what seems to me like a a death spiral, a doom loop, whatever you want to call it. And, you know, it, it, In particular, for those who feel kind of disempowered by the political system, and I'm thinking here, especially of folks on the center right, I think there's more support for basic citizenship and and democratic norms than folks on the left think there is. And I think a lot of folks on the left are are more tolerant of the right in a way that's counterproductive, but I, I don't know how to get out of that. So how do we get out of that? What gives you hope? What sustains you?
2: Netflix? No. So.
1: Well, that's good. I mean, you got to do self-care, right?
2: Yeah. So I would say first, let me kind of care because the way that you describe it, and I hope that I didn't indicate this, is I don't think that maintaining social ties is like a taunt. I don't think that's the hard work of organizers. I wouldn't have quit equate the two. If anything I think about good citizenship is kind of like a micro theory. We participate in these social interactions. And to quote the great George Costanza, we live in a society. So, you know, when we interact, that builds up the kind of social capital to you know mobilize later or to kind of bring citizens out. All of these things, you know, that I ask and study in the book, these are not behaviors. These are norms. Norms precede behaviors. Um, This is kind of building up the reservoirs of good democracy.
1: So is this just like having friends and like saying hi to your neighbors?
2: I mean, that's part, those are some behaviors that maintain social (laughs) ties. Yeah. And like, even that can be work, right? For some people, if you don't like your neighbor, or if, you know, you had an argument about a peach tree, that is not hypothetical. That is my lived experience. But the point is, that even if you don't have, even if you're on the on the left and and you know you despise everything that maybe the Republican platform stands for, and you know you don't have any Republican friends, but I believe that if you maintain the view that it's okay for people to hold different views, right? If you maintain the belief that like it's okay that that everyone should obey the law, like that 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 for me is sufficient agreement that like the values of good citizenship hold that people understand their role in democracy. As Julie asked earlier, right? That's a real problem when people deny democratic norms, right? Because then you observe violations of that consensus. So I do take comfort in the fact that most people, kind of majority of people hold democratic values. I think that that quote unquote, gets me through it. On the other hand, I wouldn't even pretend to say that that is sufficient uh, for what we observe as kind of real breaking of the democratic system, right? That's institutional. I don't know what me as an individual can do about electoral interference. I don't know what I as an individual can do about Russian collusion. I mean, right, these are such big problems. But what I can do is like maintain social ties. What I can do is hold certain beliefs. What I can do is have conversations with people of about at the micro level about the veteran cemetery in my community, right? So, as long as people still participate in that and they can kind of still have conversations with one another, I'm still on, on the kind of optimistic side of the spectrum here.
1: All right, you heard it here first. Talk to your neighbors, pick up your trash, don't run stoplights and
0: something about a peach tree. Yeah. (laughs) uh,
1: Something about a peach tree.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much, Sarah Wallace Goodman of the University of California at Irvine. Um, Her book is Citizenship in Hard Times. Her other book is Pandemic Politics, which I believe is out uh, later this year, later in the spring. October. Okay. Amazing. I've lost track of what year it is. So uh, the less said about that, the better. But thank you so much for joining us, Sarah. It was uh, so much fun, as always, to talk to you. This has been another episode of Politics in Question.
1: Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Shannon Lynch and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly.